If you're just joining us, we've been in the middle of a, a series on the life of David, Israel's greatest king, the forerunner to Jesus, the one who sets the stage and the pattern for the Messiah who is to come. Jesus is the one who sits on David's throne. And what we have now is actually David in a time of uh, emotional unrest. You're going to see in this passage, David go from exuberant joy to uh, anger and then to fear. And it's all because of God's holiness that is proclaimed in this passage. That may be some of your emotional state when we read this. It may be anger and fear. The question we're really going to deal with today is how do we move from anger and fear to awe and love? How do we move from anger and fear to awe and love? Keep that in mind as I read. I'm in 1 Chronicles uh, chapter 13. Just a little aside, we've been in 1 and 2 Samuel. They record many of the same events in 1 Chronicles. So 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles, the history of the kingdom uh, of, of the kings of Israel, starting with David. So there's a lot of overlap between the books of 1 and 2 Samuel and the books of 1 and 2 Chronicles, and even some overlap then with 1 and 2 Kings. I don't want to make it too complicated, but we've jumped around to 1 Chronicles because I just want you to know there's, uh, there's a few different books that actually record these same events. So if you've got a Bible, open it up, 1 Chronicles chapter 13. I'm starting in verse 5. So David assembled all Israel from the Nile of Egypt to Libo Hamath to bring the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim. And David and all Israel went up to Balal, that is Kiriath-Jerim, that belongs to Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord, who sits enthroned above the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart. From the house of Abinadab, and Uzzah and Ahio were driving the cart. And David and all Israel were celebrating before God with all their might, with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and cymbals and trumpets. And when they came to the threshing floor of Chidon, Uzzah put out his hand to take hold of the ark, for the oxen had stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and he struck him down. Because he put out his hand to the ark, and he died there before God. And David was angry, because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez-Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of God that day. And he said, how can I bring the ark of God home to me? So David did not take the ark home into the city of David, but he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of God remained with the household of Obed-Edom in his house for three months. And the Lord blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that he had. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Lord, this is a difficult passage. It may come as a shock to a lot of us. Lord, we need difficult passages. We need shocks back to life so that you might wake us from the stupor that we are in, so that you might show us who you are in ways that we've forgotten. Lord, let us proclaim and celebrate your holiness today. Move us from anger and fear to awe and to love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I have a friend. Uh, we used to live in Austin together. We went to church together. We also worked for the same company. 
We also lived in the same zip code. We also both drove German cars at the time. There was on the surface a lot about our life that seemed really similar. But if you started to dig down just a little bit deeper, you would see that the company that we worked in, his office had the word CEO on the door. And my office, well, I didn't have an office, so it didn't have anything on the door. And uh, his house in my zip code was about a 7,500 square foot brand new house with this gorgeous infinity pool kind of looking out over the hills of West Austin. And mine was a 1,500 square foot 1973 ranch house in the suburbs. And that German car that we shared, you know, mine was a 1981 Mercedes diesel clunker, and his was a brand new BMW 7 Series. On the surface, seemed really similar underneath really, really different. There's an article I read the other day about this microphone, article written by Andy Crouch, who's one of my favorite authors. And he wrote an article about this microphone. This is the most ubiquitous microphone, kind of the -the over-the-ear wireless microphone in many, maybe thousands of churches around the country. Pastors right now are standing here doing what I'm doing with this very microphone on. It's kind of become the microphone of the day for pastors. And the reason is, is that this microphone actually allows for great transparency and intimacy with the congregation. Like, I'm talking, and it's amplified, but it kind of just feels like we're in a, just a little room together, just, just you and me talking together. And there's nothing that has to stand in between us. I don't have to have some big piece of wood. I don't have to hold a microphone. There's a lot of intimacy and transparency. We are together right now. Anthropologists uh, have a phrase that they use called power distance. Power distance is, is the way that we want people in authority to feel like they're in authority, or maybe not to feel like they're in authority. For instance, in a high power distance culture, the folks in authority show that they're in authority by what they wear by the words that they say, by kind of the way that they carry themselves. There are lots of symbols of authority going on. Now, we, by and large, live in a low power distance culture. We live in a time in which we want the people in authority over us to feel very close to us. We want to narrow that gap. We want to really bring it down, and and we want everybody to kind of feel the same. Think about the way that even, uh, you know, corporate executives used to dress and do now. And if you worked at IBM, first of all, if you worked at IBM, you probably wore a suit and tie. But certainly if you were an executive, you wore a suit and tie. And you probably even wore a very specific color tie. Anybody know? Red. The power tie. The tie that says, I'm in charge and you're not. Because everybody needed to know, these are the people that are the bosses and these are the people that aren't the bosses. But things have really shifted, haven't they? Steve Jobs, who was maybe the most powerful executive in the world when he was alive, was really famous for wearing jeans and a mock turtleneck. Very much, I'm just like you kind of feeling. Low power distance. Mark Zuckerberg, CEO of Facebook, famously wears a t-shirt and a hoodie to work. Low power distance. The way that we deal with that in many areas of our life is really like that. It happens in the church as well. Charles Stanley was a very popular preacher in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. He's now 81, 82 years old. 
He would preach in a suit and a tie with a big substantial wooden table in front of him and a big Bible kind of laid over up the table and a big microphone right in front of him. High power distance. His son, Andy Stanley, is just the opposite. People called his father Dr. Stanley. Andy preaches in khakis and an open-collar polo shirt, and he's got a little kind of cafe table like I do with some notes scattered around, and oftentimes he even sits down in a chair, and people call him Andy. He wears one of these microphones, by the way. Low power distance culture. You see it in movies even about the way that we think of God, don't you? Think about the way that God is often portrayed in movies over the last 20, 30 years. Even if you go back into the 80s, Oh God, remember that one? George Burns, kind of curmudgeonly, you know, cigar smoking, but, you know, at the heart, kind of a sweet old grandpa. And then you get to Evan Almighty and you have God portrayed by Morgan Freeman, who's really just kind of like the guy you want to hang out with. He's like your dad, your grandpa, your best friend. He just wants to buddy up next to you. He's soft and gentle and just like you. And then maybe the latest one, The Shack. We have God portrayed in the movie by Oct- Octavia Bishop. What's her name? I've forgotten her name. A warm, loving woman who wants to hug you and cook you some soup. That's the way that we think about God. Low power distance. Here's my point. Maybe our culture's low power distance has infected the way that we think about God. Maybe because of the culture we live in, we've actually started to think about God as our buddy rather than as our God. Maybe we need to change the way that we understand who God is. Passages like this can kind of hit you in the face, can't they? Passages like this can leave you wondering, man, what is going on? Who is this God? Passages like this can shake us kind of by the shoulders, and what I think we need this morning is to be shaken by the shoulders a little bit, to know that, yes, God is loving. Yes, God is gentle. Yes, God cares for us. Yes, God is present, but yes, God is holy. God is even dangerous. God is unique. God is above us. God is beyond us. God is immense in a way that we can't get our arms around. We're going to dive into that today. We're going to dive into God's holiness so that we can actually see with awe and wonder who God is. And again, how we might not only see him with awe, but also with love. So before we kind of dive in, or as we dive in, let me give you a little bit of background about what's going on in this passage. David has now ascended to the throne of Israel. Remember, we spent really our first four weeks or so talking about David on the run. David was promised the crown and the throne, but he didn't get it quite yet. Well, now we've seen that David has been crowned king of all Israel, and he's going to do a few things differently than Saul did. And the first of which is that he is going to actually bring back to the center what should have been at the center all of the time, and that is the Lord. And he is going to bring in the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. It's been stored at somebody's house previously. He's going to bring the Ark into Jerusalem, into the city in which all of Israel's worship is supposed to surround, and the cultural life and the political life, so that God will actually be at the center of all of it. 
the way that it's supposed to have been the whole time, David's going to make that right. So what in the world is the ark? I'm glad you asked that question. Well, it's not the ark that Noah and his family were on. It's not a boat. It's spelled the same, but something is different. The Ark of the Covenant, the way that it's described here, is actually a wooden box, medium-sized wooden box that God told Israel to build. Let me read you just a little bit about it from Exodus 25, if you'd like. You're welcome to turn there uh, with me. Exodus 25, I'm going to read actually a big chunk, verse 10 uh, through 22. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold, inside and outside overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold all around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and then put them on its four feet. Two rings on one side, two rings on the other side of it. And then make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And then put your finger here if you're following along. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry it by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you will put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. Make a mercy seat of pure gold, two cubits and a half its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. Make two cherubim of gold, hammered work shall you make them, and two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. One piece with the mercy seat, you shall make the cherub on its two ends. This is the mercy seat is the lid for the box here. And the cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings and their faces to one another toward the mercy seat, and their face shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark. In the ark, you shall put the testimony that I give you. Those are the two tablets of stone that God wrote on on Mount Sinai. And there I will meet with you and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. God's people were to make this ark. God uh, commanded them to make this symbol of his presence. It's actually here that God would physically meet with Moses and with Aaron and with Joshua this is to be the symbol of God's presence among his people. Very much in many ways like a sacrament. The symbol of God's presence among his people. But there were particular ways in which Israel was supposed to handle this sacramental object, this holy object. And there were some special ways that were kind of laid out. Let me read you again verse 14 where I told you to put your finger. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the side of the ark to carry the ark by them. These rings that go on each of the corners of the ark and poles that go through so that you can pick it up and carry it, two guys on their shoulders. All right, listen again. I'm going to jump over now to Numbers chapter 4. You're welcome to turn there with me if you like. Uh, verses 4 through 6. This is the service of the sons of Kohath in the tent of meeting. They're uh, a clan of the Levites, the priestly order, the most, uh, in the tent of meeting, the most holy things. When the camp is to set out, Aaron and his son shall go in and take down the veil of the screen and cover the ark of the testimony with it. And then they shall put on it a covering of goatskin and spread on top of that a cloth of all blue and shall put in its poles. This is a time when they're supposed to be moving the tabernacle, which is a big tent, and they're moving the ark with it, and they're told exactly how to move it. Skip over to verse uh, 15 or down to verse 15. 
And when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, as the camp sets out, after that, the sons of Kohath shall come to carry these. But listen to this. But they must not touch the holy things, lest they die. And then flip over to chapter 7 in Numbers as well. We hear this in verse 9. But to the son, or let me actually back up a little bit. Verse 4. The Lord said to Moses, Accept these from them that they may be used in the service of the tent of meeting and give them to the Levites, to each man according to his service. And this is what Moses is to give to them. So Moses took the wagons and the oxen and he gave them to the Levites. Two wagons for, and four oxen he gave to the sons of Gershon according to their service. And four wagons and eight oxen he gave to the sons of Merai according to their service under the direction of Ithmar the son of Aaron the priest. Listen to this. But to the sons of Kohath, he gave none, because they were charged with the service of the holy things that had to be carried on the shoulder. Two really important pieces of what God has said in his word, that those who are going to transport the Ark of the Covenant, don't touch it, don't put it on a cart. Now Uzzah is probably one of the sons of Kohath. He's probably been doing this for quite some time. This is like an episode of You Had One Job, okay? This is Uzzah's only job. So why does he disobey what God has clearly laid out? God has said very clearly, here's how you handle the ark. Don't touch it. He actually says, don't look in it either. And don't put it on a cart. Carry it on the poles. But Uzzah and his brother Ahio put it on a cart and when it falls, reach up to touch it. Why would they do that? Well, probably the same reason you and I actually don't obey God's law. <laughs> it's because at the end of the day, what our hearts oftentimes cry out for is not for God to be at the center, but for me to be at the center. You know what we want to do? We want to shrink the power distance. We want to shrink the power distance between us and God, either by raising ourselves up somehow that we think is going to get close to God's level, or by bringing him down some way to ours. We want it smaller and smaller. This is what Uzzah does here. It's what we do all the time. Really quickly, I want to talk about four ways that we can do this. Four ways that we can actually shrink the power distance between God and us, that we can either raise ourselves to his level, at least we think, or we can try to bring him down to ours. Here's the first one. Is that we think that closeness erases distinction. That closeness actually erases the distinction. See, Uzzah, again, has probably done this for quite some time. He's feeling like, I know kind of the drill. Uh, I know that God is close. I know that he loves me, and I know what I'm doing. So you know what? Let's just kind of loosen the rules a little bit. We can get away with that, can't we? Maybe you've experienced this temptation if you've ever worked for a friend or a relative. That idea of like, yeah, you know, but we know each other. We're buddies. So like all of the rules don't really apply to me. I can, I can kind of let it loose a little bit, right? You'll let me fudge on some things. Everything will be okay because our closeness kind of erases the distinction. And we let the warmth of God's love, actually, we let it, we make it forget the heat of his holiness. And we think, well, God is close, so he must not be unique. He must not be holy. We shrink the power distance that way. How about this second way? 
is that we think obedience only comes with agreement. You ever do this? Ever kind of think, well, you know, I don't really agree with that, so maybe I don't really have to do it. I don't really understand it completely, so maybe I don't have to obey it. I can't really get my whole head around it, so maybe I just won't really do it. Maybe this is kind of what Uzzah was thinking. Maybe it wasn't, you know, well, what was Uzzah thinking? Maybe Uzzah's thinking, well, what was God thinking? This is weird. This is stupid. Why would we carry it on poles? That's so dumb. It's a long way. It's on my shoulder. It hurts. This is going to be hard. Why don't we just put it on the cart? It's a new cart. We have oxen. They can, we can sit back in the back of the cart and play cards. It'll be fine. But who made the mind? God did. Who are we to suppose that we can wrap our minds around his infinite ways? And so we shrink the power distance, don't we, to say, well, if I can get my head around it, then I will do it. If not, maybe not. Here's a third way, is that we just think that God should agree with all of our preferences. We shrink the power distance between us and God by thinking, well, he should just kind of agree with everything that I agree with. He should agree with all of the things that I think are important. And even if his word has some emphases, well, we're not going to really pay attention to those. We're going to really pay attention to these ones right here because those are the things that I'm pretty excited about. So we're going to really land right here. And God, instead of becoming our authority, just kind of becomes this big rubber stamp in the sky. He's the one that just kind of approves all of the things that we wanted to do anyway. We're shrinking the power distance. We're forgetting God's holiness. Here's the fourth thing and final thing, is that we think that God is only allowed in some very particular places in our life. Yeah, God, you can kind of be involved in the religious stuff. You can kind of show up on Sunday mornings, maybe another one or two times during the week if you want, but there's definitely some places in my life where I don't want you messing with. Don't go messing with my finances. Don't go messing with my relationships. Don't go messing with the way that I think about the world. This is your place, God. Stay in your lane. We do that sometimes, don't we? Guess what that's doing? Shrinking the power distance. In fact, maybe even flipping it. Because we're saying, who's really got the ultimate authority here? It's me. And God needs to kind of just be held in check and do what I say. So we manage him. Here's the truth that is proclaimed in this passage. Is that God is not to be managed. God is not to be trifled with. God is not to be kept in a box. God is not to be kept on a leash. God is not here for our whims. He's not here to rubber stamp all the things that we want to do. He has not given us his law so that we might decide which pieces of it we like and which pieces of it we don't. God is holy. He is infinite. He is powerful. He is majestic. He is unique. He is not like us. He is beyond us. And when we think that somehow we can get close, then we have really messed up the equation. And here's really what I want to say. If you've been falling asleep, pay attention now. How do you go from anger and fear to awe and love? It's not by shrinking the power distance. It's actually by expanding it. See, we will never actually get the good news if we don't get the news first that God is holy. 
We will never actually be moved to awe and even to love in response for God if we don't first understand this, is that God is holy and he is not to be trifled with. Do you know that any time in the Bible when God's people actually cry out for him for salvation, you know they so often use this phrase, the Holy One of Israel. That's who they look to for salvation. It's not the mediocre one of Israel. It's not the God who may be able to do something. It's the Holy One. That's who they call out to. And the reason is because it's only the one who is clean that can actually wipe away the dirt. It's only the clean one who can forgive. I have a friend, used to be a roommate of mine, we lived with about five guys in college, and he was just absolutely out of his mind about the soap that he used. He would only use his own soap. And he'd take his soap into the shower, and he'd shower with his soap, and he'd box it up in a little box, and he'd put it in a special place in his room, and nobody else could ever see or use his soap, and he certainly wasn't going to use your soap. We thought he was crazy, because he was crazy. But... It's a pretty good illustration, actually, of what's going on here. What my friend thought was, you know, if I'm going to get clean, I better be using clean soap. That's what's happening here, is that actually we can't be made clean if the one cleansing us isn't holy. We can't be rescued if the one rescuing us isn't holy. We can't be taken out of the mire if the one who's taking us out isn't somehow beyond us. We can't actually be met by somebody who's not above us. We can't be rescued unless God is different. And this is the beauty, right? Is that we don't actually get to God by reaching up to him. We don't find the closeness by reaching up to touch him like Uzzah did. It's actually the gap that is there is closed by God himself. See, when we expand the power distance, we actually then understand for the first time that Jesus has closed the power distance, that he has filled the distance, that he has bridged the gap in himself. Because it's in Christ that we find both of these things. We find God's uniqueness, his holiness, his amazement. It's why when Peter actually first really realizes who Jesus is, when Jesus calms a storm, you know what Peter says? Go away. I don't want you anywhere close to me. I'm a sinner. You're holy. I'm going to die. That's what he says to Jesus. Jesus is different. But Jesus is also near and immediate and personal. It's why Peter can also say, when Jesus says, I'm going to come wash your feet, you know what Peter says? Wash the whole body, man. Let me get it all. I want you as close as I can. This is where we see them come together, where we can expand that power distance because we see that Jesus has actually been the one that's closed it. We oftentimes think of ourselves in some sort of level with God. Now, we, we wouldn't say that. We probably wouldn't even think that, but it's usually there. When we expand that distance, what we actually get is the gospel. So you could actually say that the definition of sin is us trying to close that power distance, whether it's lifting myself up to where I think God is or bringing, himself, bringing him down to my level. 
Salvation, though, is Jesus actually filling that distance for us. And to become a Christian is to say, Jesus, I want you to do the work, not me. I'm not going to close the gap. The gap is wider than I could imagine, but you can actually bridge it. How do we move from fear and anger to awe and love? It's actually by seeing that, the beauty of the gospel, so that we can be in awe of the one who is holy. We can be in awe of the one who is all-powerful. We can be in awe of the one who is utterly unique. And still we can love the one who has made himself one of us, who has taken on our flesh, who is actually the Holy One has taken on the unholiness of his people and died the penalty for their sin. See, Jesus is Uzzah for us. Jesus is the one who actually took the penalty for unholiness, who took the death so that we don't have to. He's the one who stood in our place. That is the way we go from fear and anger to awe and love. Let's pray. Lord, we are amazed by your holiness today. And let's just be honest, some of us are feeling the same kind of things that David felt when he saw it first. We're not sure what to do with it. Maybe we're angry. Maybe we've kind of gotten past anger and we've realized, if this is God, I don't really want any part of him. I'm afraid. But Lord, it's actually through your incarnation and through your life and through your death and your resurrection that that holiness can actually become ours. <laughs> how beautiful, Lord, that when you tell us how we are to change, you tell us that it's going to be by the power of your Holy Spirit, that it's your Spirit dwelling within us, making us holy, that is the power for change. <laughs> Lord, will you work that in us even now? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.